0: All right, well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. We are wrapping up uh, this series. We've been in uh, this kind of mini series, kind of wrapping up the summer. Uh, unfortunately, summer is over, right? September 21st, isn't that a thing? Oh, yeah, it's August. <laughs> Still got a couple weeks. Anyways, uh, wrapping up our summer series uh, What's in a Name? This is week five. We've just been looking at the church. Uh, not necessarily particular to Hope Lower Town and what we're doing in the community and that kind of stuff, but uh, who are we? As far as we are a church, and uh, so we've been looking at what's in a name and looking at different illustrations. Uh, just a heads up: we are going to be kicking off next week. Uh, we're going to be looking at Hosea, and it may not be a familiar book uh, that you know. Uh, just one of uh, one of the prophets that uh, God uh, speaks through in the Old Testament, and we're going to be doing that for ten weeks. Uh, we're going to do three weeks on stewardship, and then uh, after that, holy cow, Freddie's here in the flesh. Look at this. Look at that. This guy doesn't miss church, man. He's one week old. Look at that. <laughs> uh, that's good. All right. Uh, Zach, no childcare next week, just so you guys know. You're the only kids in the room, so... Uh, we're going to be doing Hosea, three weeks on stewardship, and then Christmas. Uh, it comes that fast. That's 13 weeks until we start talking about little baby Jesus, uh, which is fun. So uh, anyways, Hosea, though, I'm really excited about going through Hosea. Uh, it's a deep book. And it's a prophetic book, uh, God warning Israel. Uh, and so we will be jumping into that uh, next week. Uh, briefly, I just want to kind of recap. The last four weeks, there wasn't really, you know, if, if you weren't here the last four weeks, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Um, they don't build on one another, if that makes sense. You could pick and choose and listen to it online in any order. Uh, there's not really any structure. I just was looking at names. And so we started off with what does church mean? Uh, looked at the word church. Why do we call it the church? And I just had this quote from Dever. The church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving him in his world. And then uh, Paul, one of our elders, preached to the body of Christ, looking at we all uh, make up, right, individuals, but we uh, make up one body, that there's no part that's more important than another part. There are visible parts, there are parts that are uh, vital uh, parts of the body, and yet maybe unseen. And so uh, that we work together. A couple weeks ago, looking at the family uh, of God, that when you're here, you're family, according to Dom. And again, we uh, looked at, uh, just had this. This is a picture from the picnic. Man, I, I tell you, that just made me so happy. It really did. There were, there were multiple times um, where I was over there grilling, thanks to Ben. I'd never used charcoal before, so thankfully Ben knew what he was doing because I didn't know what was going on. And um, it was just fun. It was fun to just see people uh, from the church um, being the body, being the family. It really was a good time. Uh, and then last week, uh, Paul looked at witnesses. Uh, that we are God's witnesses, the church is, that we should be uh, telling people about Jesus. Uh, and then this week we're gonna be talking about this illustration, this idea of the bride of Christ. And so we've been, this is the last of these illustrations. There's a lot more illustrations, a lot more names and titles uh, that it's given to the church, but these are the five that we, that we chose. And so I just have a question. I asked this to my wife last night. What, what comes to mind when you think of the bride of Christ. Maybe it's a phrase you're just like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but what comes to mind? What are, what are some images or some thoughts that, that are stirred up uh, in your mind? Uh, fun fact, um, Christian art is really bad. <laughs> a lot of it is, right? Some of the music is good. Uh, a lot of movies, Christian movies, hey, they're great. They, they pull on my heartstrings. man, they're bad, right? Uh, I love Kirk Cameron. We're going to talk about him in a minute. Uh, but man, it's just, there's, a, there's just a lot, right? Uh, and so, so I, when you just Google Bride of Christ, uh, there's some images, right, that pop up. This is, you know, a, a woman, a bride, I guess, in a, in a, in a gown, um, and all these angels. Do you know another fun fact? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that angels have wings. Nowhere. There are two times, cherubim and seraphim, that are possibly types of angels that have six wings. So when we have angels with these wings, I don't know where this comes from. It's not not in the Word. It's not in the Bible. Why do we do this? I don't know. When a bell rings, angels get their wings. The first depiction of angels, I googled it, the first depiction of angels is on the Prince's sarcophagus from 379 AD. Here's another image. The lion of Judah meeting his bride. The lion's coming down the stairs instead of the bride. I don't know. That's just how it works, I guess. This one's a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> just stop, right? If now I don't know how to use PowerPoint, so they did a better job than me. Okay, I'm, so I'm not trying to make fun of anybody, but if you if you can't do it, just stop. Or just stop. Uh, obviously, the bride with these are. If you can't tell, these are. Uh, a bunch of faces, a bunch of very uh, white faces, to, to be honest, uh, to, that make up the bride's dress, uh, which is interesting. Do better. If you're an artist and you're a Christian artist, do better. This is just bad. <laughs> Except the chosen. The chosen is fantastic. I got to start getting royalties every time I say the chosen. This week, sponsored by the chosen. All right. The bride of Christ. And and there's there's an asterisk, there's a a colon here. Oh, it's a a warning. What I want to do this morning is I want to talk about a warning against the prosperity gospel that has perpetuated itself into American theology without realization. Does that fit in the, uh, can I fit that in my title on the website? No. The Bride of Christ. Listen, this morning is going to be a warning against the prosperity gospel. That's a term that's thrown out a lot in culture, and I don't want to just gloss over that. Prosperity gospel means... That the Bible and the things in it, God only wants me to be successful, to be wealthy, to be healthy, to be happy. Listen, we we we've walked through First and Second Peter. It talks about suffering. It talks about the, the trials that we're going to come uh, upon, upon across in our in our lives. And to think, because I'm an American, uh, I'm a middle class American, therefore I don't have to suffer and it's actually perpetuated itself, it's, it's, it's integrated itself into theology, into the pulpits, into the church. This morning I've had a song, I wanna say it was pink. I wanna start a fight, is that? na 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 I wanna start, I don't know. It's probably a super inappropriate song, it's pink. I don't know, it, all I know is I, that song has been in my head all morning, because I'm gonna say some things this morning that can be very offensive. Uh, they are offensive, they just are. Uh, They might upset you. Uh, If your parents were here, they might upset your parents. If my grandparents were here, if my in-laws were here, this sermon is not for your in-laws. This sermon is not for your parents. This sermon is for you. Leave it there. I don't want you thinking about, oh, yeah, I know people like that. No, 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 stop. Stop there. You. Me. Me. Let me, uh, I'm going to just give you a quick outline of what we're going to do. I'm going to explain the theology, what I mean by this. And I want to look at the text. I want to look at the Bible. We're going to walk through this from the Bible. Then I want to challenge our way of thinking about the bride of Christ. When I was initially thinking about this sermon, and I, and I picked this illustration of the bride of Christ, this, it shifted. This week took a wild turn into, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to upset some people. I'm okay with that. Uh, but I want to talk about the Bride of Christ. Uh, so let's do this. Let's look at, I want to explain the theology. I'm going to use a big word here, and it may mean absolutely nothing to you, and yet, I think after I explain it, you're going to go, oh yeah, I've heard about this. I know a little bit about this. And so I want to talk about what's called the history of dispensationalism. Uh, there's a lot that I could say. And I'm, and I'm going I'm to cram it into a box. There are four different even views of dispensationalism. I wanna take classical or historical dispensationalism. By that, uh, it was, this idea came in the 1830s, so it's not even a 200-year-old theology. Uh, I struggle with believing anything that's relatively new, and in church history, this is very new. And yet, this is an idea that is all over our churches in the United States. And, I will say, in white churches. It's just how it is. Now, let me explain it, because you're like, I I still don't know what you're talking about. That's why I want to spend some time talking to this guy named John Darby. Uh, Over in Scotland, there was a a, a revival meeting. Uh, A guy was preaching, and this young girl in her teens had a dream, had a vision that ends up being dispensationalism. She tells this dream to this guy. He then tells it to other people and it just spreads like wildfire. Uh, If you've heard of D.L. Moody, he hears about it, brings it back to Chicago, uh, Schofield, the first uh, study Bible. There's a reference Bible and uh, it was the first Bible of its kind. Normally it was just the words of the Bible on paper Schofield comes out with a study Bible explaining his theology and it was dispensational theology that was in the United States and that was printed like crazy. And so churches, American churches, got these Bibles and they ate it up. So that's how it, it starts. Now the big thing with dispensationalism, what's called the sine qua non, a fancy term for the essential teaching within dispensationalism is you have Israel, national Israel, the nation of Israel, and then you have the church, and they are completely separate things. All the prophecies written about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament are for the nation of Israel. It has nothing to do with the church. I remember in college, I went to a dispensational college for undergrad and, and for seminary. And I remember, though, in, in college asking the question, So then what's the point of the Old Testament? What do we do with the Old Testament? I remember my professor saying, oh, we weren't invited to that party. All of the Old Testament is about Israel, and it's about the history of Israel and about who God is. It reveals who he is. The New Testament is for the church. And someday, national Israel is going to become the primary nation that God's going to use. So I can walk into a church And within the first two minutes, I can figure out, is this a dispensational church or not? The other camp where we would be would be a reformed church, that we put more stock in the covenants. Dispensation means God interacts with his people differently in different dispensations. Innocence, conscience, uh, kingdom, law, there's these, there's, depending on which flavor dispensational you are, there can be seven to 11 different dispensations, whereas there's five covenants. Maybe maybe I'm reformed in my covenant theology because it's just easier to remember, I don't know. They obviously believe in covenants, it's in the Bible, they wouldn't disagree with that, but there's just more. God interacts. So it was different, Adam and Eve were saved and came to faith differently before the fall than after the fall. After the fall, before the law, people were saved, redeemed differently than when the law was introduced then when the kingdom was introduced, then the New Testament, and then there's a couple other afterwards. Israel and church completely separate. Now here's what I say, What I was trying to say. When I walk into a church, I can tell if they're a dispensational church, mainly, mainly because they have American flags. Listen, I'm proud of being American. I love being an American. Uh, I love it here. So don't, don't hear me bash the United States. I'm not saying that. But the United States, I'm thankful for the privileges and the freedoms that it offers me as a pastor. It's got no place in the church. Um, we, every week, used to take the flags down. The United First Baptist Church is a little different because they have immigrants, a lot of immigrants that go to their congregation. And, and the United States has offered them religious, political freedom that they did not get over in Myanmar, Burma. Uh, and so I, I get that. They're under their thinking of the flag is very different. But when they, we elevate the United States and the flag, it's better than the kingdom of God or whatever it may be. And their infatuation with the success of Israel, the nation of Israel. Israel was established after World War II, the nation, the land. Uh, this morning on the way in, I always listened to kind of uh, AM radio of religious stations. And there was literally one, I, it was the first time I found it. It was, it was called, the name of the program was called Friends of Israel Today. That was the name of the program. It, it perpetuates in our culture, in our society, in our churches to say, I, it's all about the end times. How's this going to end? They're infatuated with the rapture, which we're going to talk about. All these different things and, and what this means for the church, but mainly the restoration of Israel. And if you were to Google Dispensationalism, on on the Wikipedia page, there's a whole thing that says politics in the United States on a theological discussion. You understand this? Israel is going to be reestablished. The temple's going to be rebuilt. So to help with this, uh, there's a book called uh, The Greatest Book on Dispensational Truth. I own it. you thought my charts, you thought my graphics were bad. Charts. Lots of them. See, clear as day. Clear as day, right? What's interesting is they would actually say, and I and listen, I said this, okay? Uh, this is the natural, easiest way to read the Bible. No, it's not. It's not. You can't even, you can't even see it. It doesn't, these images don't make any sense, right? So now a lot of you, how many of you read or heard of the Left Behind series? Or about half of you. You can't really read it. It's that little small sticker that says more than 63 million copies sold. 63 million. Kirk Cameron made the the whole movie series on this, right? What is Left Behind series? It is dispensational theology in fictional, biblical fiction form. And when this caught like wildfire in the United States, again, that's all this is, the nation of Israel, the rapture of the church. So let me explain this. This is my graphic. See how much easier, see how much better I am? Here's dispensational theology Again, this is in a nutshell okay I, we could I could teach a whole semester long class on this, so i 'm doing this in fifteen minutes here that you have the nation of Israel ethnic Israel if you 're a jew you're born of a jew or you become you you merge yourself in you become part of Israel the nation of israel that's how you get in that 's how you are redeemed you're part of the camp and then we have this church age that was my best uh try at making parentheses, okay? The church age is called the great parenthesis when it comes to dispensational theology. You have the nation of Israel, the great parenthesis, which is the church age, and then you have the seven years of tribulation. Right at the end of that, though, you have the rapture. Might be familiar with this term, the rapture. The rapture is this idea that Jesus is gonna secretly unknown to anybody at any known time is going to take everyone who's a believer from the church and snatch them up to heaven for seven years. Now, well, depending. You could be pre-trib, you could be mid-trib, you could be pre-wrath-trib, and you could be post-trib. But either way, you're going to be raptured. You're going to be taken out. Why? Because I'm an American and I don't need to suffer. I'm telling you, it's the only logical explanation. I don't want to suffer suffering's bad. The tribulation, when I read the book of Revelation, when I read Ezekiel, when I read Daniel, I don't want to be there for that. We got to figure out a way where we're not going to have to be there. Therefore, you get the rapture. I go up, I'm there for seven years, and I come back down. Uh, I couldn't make an infinity sign, so whatever that thing is, that's eternity, that's eternity future, okay? I couldn't, couldn't figure out how to make an eight sideways, okay? Okay, all right, <laughs> what is this great parenthesis? Let me explain this. Uh, this is Daniel chapter 9. This is where this comes from. Daniel is a prophetic book. Uh, and Daniel's going to talk about this and what the natural reading apparently is going to be the nation of Israel. And then you're going to have thousands of years. It's a great parenthesis. that This could keep going until the church is raptured. And then... The tribulation starts, and that is when Israel is going to be reinstituted. The nation is going to be, it's for them again. Let me read Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, starting verse 24. It's called, 70 weeks are decreed for your people, or 77s. Seven, um, 77 years. Se- 70, stop, period. 70s, oh, how do I say this? There's <laughs> seven seventy. Chunks of seven years, okay? All right, that's what I'm trying to say. For 70 weeks, or 77s, are decreed before your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to the sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which we, we talked, we walked through Nehemiah a couple years ago. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they're rebuilding Jerusalem. That's when this time, that's when this prophecy starts. Okay? That's when this timeline starts. Until the time of the anointed one or the anointed prince, that's Jesus, the Messiah, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with streets and moat, and, but in a troubled time. Okay, if you do the math there, that's 69. Okay, you can understand why there's a lot of charts, a lot of pictures, a lot of graphs. So for 69 sevens, you get from the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem until when Jesus comes. Then they have this great parenthesis because the nation of Israel, all these prophecies still have to come true. So they got to figure out a way to put a pause on it because the book of Revelation, this tribulation, all these end times still have to take place in the future, and that doesn't make any sense with the timeline in Daniel. So what happens? They put a pause on it. Rather than saying, maybe it just kept going, and maybe after the last 70, Jerusalem was destroyed, and there was tribulation, and maybe the Apostle John in the book of Revelation is talking about this desolation that took place in 70 AD. The math checks out. My graph's a lot easier. Check this out. This is my graph. You have Israel, and then you have Jesus, and Jesus ascends into heaven. This is not a rapture. And someday he's going to come back down out of heaven. But what I want to teach today when I look at this idea of the bride of Christ, that the bride of Christ isn't a New Testament term that's just for the church. That we have the bride of God, this marriage that happens between God and Israel. And then there's a shift that the church now is grafted in. It's not one or the other. It's not them and us and someday Israel's going to be restored and us Gentiles from the church, we're going to be looking in at this party that's going to be happening. We become one, united. So that's the, that was it in a nutshell. There's a lot, a whole lot more I could say about that in case you couldn't figure that out. But you're like, I still don't know what you're talking about. That's okay. Let's just get to the bride of Christ. Let's prove it from the text. Israel described as God's bride. I'm just going to read through these. There's a lot lot of different verses here. I'm just going to read through them. So we see Israel described as God's bride. And there's a lot that I could do in Hosea that I'm not going to do because we're literally going to preach through this. And I don't want to deal with the bride of Christ and Israel and the church in the next 10 weeks. So I'm doing it now. See, So it all worked out. Ezekiel says this, I gave you my solemn oath. This is God saying to Israel, I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you have become mine. I bathe you with water and wash the blood from you and put ointments on you that... They saying to Israel, you are nobody. You were beaten up in the wilderness and here I am saving you. And I chose you, Israel, to be my bride. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you with fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned, you, I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and necklaces on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were a fine linen and costly fabric. In embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flower. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Now we have this marriage. Again, it's, it's, an, it's an analogy. It's an image. God doesn't have an actual wedding ceremony. Right? It's a nation it's hard, right? Then That's when you get weird Christianese images of a bride with a bunch of faces on her dress. That's what happens when you try to take these things too literal. right? It's an image, it's, a, it's an analogy here, but there's a marriage that happens here that we see Israel as the bride of Yahweh, of God. Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth and there's plenty of other passages that talk about this then we talked about the initial faithfulness of god's bride that we see israel being with god and being god's people and being married in this union jeremiah chapter 2 says the word of the lord came to me going for claim in the hearing of jerusalem this is what the lord says i remember the devotion of your youth how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness Though a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. And there's many passages, again, with this, of this faithfulness of Israel being called out of Egypt, but it doesn't last long. Very quickly, we have the unfaithfulness of God's bride. And again, we could have a lot here from Hosea, but we'll get there in the next coming weeks. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 6 says this, during the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, "His Lord Yahweh says to Jeremiah, the prophet, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. There's a lot of history with Israel, which we'll get into in Hosea. I gave faithless Israel, her certificate of divorce, and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Okay? Marriage, bride, and now you're going to spit in my face after I made a covenant with you? You've done this, you're gone, you want nothing to do with me, so I'm going to make a certificate of divorce, and it's not going to be about the nation, national national Israel. We're going to now include other people, Gentiles, Jeremiah 3.20, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. And we see this new covenant that God's gonna make with his bride. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. And yet, as a someone who believes in the covenants, someone who's reformed, I look at this and I say, okay, who is Israel here? Is this the nation? Is this national Israel? Is this this ethnic Israel? Or is this the new covenant that when Jesus shows up and he institutes it and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's now for all people. It's for Gentiles, not just a nation, a descendant of Abraham. But he says, and with my people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So I want to look at the New Testament. Uh, I'm just curious. When, I, when you think of the bride of Christ, how many of you immediately thought the church? I'm just curious. How many of you, hands up, thought, that's the church? Yeah, the church is the bride of Christ. That's funny, because the New Testament doesn't say that. <laughs> okay, so let me, let me walk us through this. Now, it's implied there are definitely... Stories, illustrations. One famous one is John the Baptist in John chapter three. This is right after uh, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, but this is John the Baptist, John the baptizer. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. This is long before the church is established. So who is the bride that John is replying, referring to here? John here is replying to the people of God. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, which is the Messiah. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. And this is full, full joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must de- decrease. The groom is here. This marriage is happening But is it the church? The church hasn't been established yet. John knows nothing of the church. He's going to lose his head before the word church is used. Ephesians 5 is often used. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to comment on this. There's things that are going to be read. You're going to go, whoa, whoa, what's that mean? Guess what? In the spring, we're going to go through Ephesians. Okay, see? So I don't have to explain this. Okay, we're going to just hold on. Time out. We're going to do it. Okay. Ephesians 5. Starting in verse 21, "'Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless.'" So there's there's this implication that the church is the bride of Christ. It's definitely implied, but it's not stated explicitly here. Continuing, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Here it is. Paul is using Christ in the church to talk about marriage but he's saying it's not about the marriage I'm talking about Christ in the church however let each one of you must love his wife as loves himself and each wife must respect her husband again a lot of questions what's going on there stay tuned till uh, the spring and we'll get there spring january it's still winter i got my months really goofy this year this today it's not not explicit so let me ask this question then has israel been replaced by the church within dispensationalism they have this they would say brian pastor brian you believe in replacement theology that you had israel national israel and you've replaced it with the church so alt control delete is that still a thing i don't know if it is gone israel's gone it's not about israel anymore it's all about the church But the church, Israel has become the church. The church is Israel. That when I read in the Old Testament, Israel, I can also read in the church. When I read in the New Testament, church, I can also say Israel. It's replacement theology. So let me ask the question again, has Israel been replaced by the church? All throughout scripture, we have this idea that you have ethnic Israelites, descendants of Abraham. That's ethnic Israel. Israel. But always, in the Old Testament, there's this phrase of true Israel, true believers, true followers of Yahweh, that just because I am a descendant of Abraham does not make me part of true Israel. There's is a minority group that's within all of ethnic Israel that is a follower, true follower of Yahweh. Just because I follow the rules follow the sacrifices, uh, follow the the holidays and all these different things and follow the 613 laws that are given in Leviticus, I do all that, doesn't mean I'm a follower of God. Doesn't mean my heart is actually following Jesus or or Yahweh at this point. Proof text, let's prove it. Romans chapter nine, starting at verse six. It is not as though God God's word had failed. Okay, so so the Apostle Paul is talking about Israel and saying, so does that mean it was all just worthless? For not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel. You can't say it any better than that. Just because you're a descendant from Israel makes you Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. If you believe in the promises, you put your faith in the promises of God, that a Messiah is going to happen, a Messiah is going to come to redeem the earth, to take my sins away, I believe in that, I'm saved. I'm redeemed. Not just because I'm some ethnic group. Continuing in Romans chapter 11, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. No, God forbid. genito. it's as strong of a phrase as you can do. No, Israel's not abandoned. Paul says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people from whom he foreknow. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left. They are trying to kill me. This is a prophet saying, they're trying, to, they're trying to kill me, your prophet, Israel. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved, I have a remnant for myself, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. And if it were grace... And if it were, sorry, if it were, comma, grace would no longer be grace. The Apostle Paul makes the exact same analogy of ethnic Israel, that I have to be a true follower of Jesus, a true Israelite. It's the same exact thing today, that you have the church, people who would claim to be followers of Jesus, people who fill pews, people who take communion, people who take mass, people who go through all the motions, do they believe? Do they have faith? And are they saved by grace? Ask yourself that question. Am I just simply going through the motions? Am I part of the church? The only time in the New Testament where it is explicitly stated about the bride of Christ, I'm going to read it. This is Revelation chapter 21. I remember a uh, quick story. I was in a, I was in a a Baptist history class at a Baptist Bible College uh, in Watertown, Wisconsin, and uh, and I was in this class. and one of my One of my buddies he was a football player, like a real football player. You know what I mean? Like uh, like he easily was a D one athlete, and I was hardly a D three athlete. <laughs> and he was sitting next to me, and I and I was. The, the teacher was talking about the bride of Christ, and I was so excited. I was like, I was like John, tomorrow in class, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this professor look like an idiot. And John was like, all right. And so John brought his camcorder. Remember those things? <laughs> so he's actually, like, videotaping this inter, inter, interchange, right, interaction with me and the professor. And, uh, and I remember the professor just walked all over me. I looked so dumb and I felt dumb. I was very embarrassed. I don't remember what he said to me, but I remember he shut me down real fast. But this was my point, And I remember bringing up this text. Let me, let me. the only time in scripture that says, this is the bride of Christ. Let's read it. Revelation 21, one of the seven angels, who had seven bowls full of the last seven plagues came and said to me, again, that might be, sound confusing. Someday we'll preach the book of Revelation. This is future. This is all going to happen sometime in the future. He says, come, I will show you, I will show you the bride. I will show you the wife of the lamb. There it is. Ready? Here's the bride. And he carried me away into the spirit of a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that, a very precious jewel, like Jasper, clear as crystal, When I was a dispensationalist a decade ago, I would say the nation of Israel has Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. It's going to be rebuilt. This new Jerusalem is the church. It's the bride of Christ. It's the church. Keep reading. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and with the 12 gates, the 12 angels at the gates, and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Who's the bride of Christ? Got the 12 tribes of Israel in it. Well, that's confusing. Keep going, John. There were three gates on the east side, three on the north, three on the the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had to have 12 foundations. And on them, the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That what we see in scripture is not replacement theology. That what we have is Israel, Ethnic Israel, but true Israel. Followers devoted to Yahweh, not circumcised just in their flesh, but circumcision of the heart. And the same is true of the church, that we're the bride of Christ, and we have all nations, all Gentiles, all people that come together, and we are the bride of Christ, that someday there's going to be, everything's going to be made new, that Jesus is going to throw death and hell, and suffering, and the devil into the lake of fire, and everything's going to be made new, and we are going to celebrate with every person who has ever believed in the promises of God. True Israel, and we follow the true Israelite Jesus. There's a lot more that I could say on that, but I'm just not going to do another another sermon for another day. Let me go into the gospel application. I've got three Three applications. So, explain the theology briefly. Tried to walk through this idea of the bride from the text. I want to challenge our way now of thinking about the bride, about us. So, here's the gospel application. First off, are you part of the true church? You're a follower of Jesus. Have you, have you actually said, I want to devote my life to Jesus? I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I'm saved by grace, period. Man, Jesus is my king. He's my savior. I want to follow him. As best as my ability, with his help, are you part of the true church, or are you just going through the motions? If you're just going through the motions, this is a terrible place to be just part of a a club. It's not fun. We talked about in family. Family, we don't get along all the time. But man, we love each other. Are you part of the true church? Second one, and we didn't get into this a whole lot, but do you have a theology that says you won't suffer? Do you have a theology that says, yeah, man, suffering's bad. It seems like God only wants what's good for me. I have a plan to prosper you, to make you successful. Is that about me? Or when I read what happens to the apostles, all the followers of Jesus, they suffer. They're ridiculed. And I think, well, man, because I'm in Jesus now, I don't have to worry about that. We, it's, ba- it's really bad theology. And to think because I'm an American or to think because whatever, that the United States, man, we're going we're gonna to help Israel become this powerhouse. We're going we're gonna to help them. If Israel, I, I remember, I remember from the pulpit, not this pulpit, uh, 12 years ago saying, man, if, if the United States changes our policy with the nation of Israel, I'm moving to Canada. I remember saying that. Why? Because of this doctrine. But even though I'm not in that camp anymore, do I still think this? Do I still think I'm better than somebody else? I deserve better. God loves me more, so therefore, no. It's really bad theology. And then finally, is Jesus enough? I mean that. Is Jesus enough? Do I constantly want more? Do I I want better? Do I want more money? Do I want a better job? Do I want a better family? Do I want a better relationship? Do I want a promotion? Do I want fill in the blank? Is Jesus enough? But what I can say, and I and I say this honestly, unapologetically, as we started off. So listen. Let me finish before you get really upset with me. Let me finish this phrase. America first policies have no place in the church. Period. Now, you want to have America first politics at home? Go ahead. You want to do that? That's fine. Let's talk about it. We can debate that all day long. That's fine. But if I'm going to put my flag above a Christian flag, you know that's a Christian flag over there? you know? I used to pledge the allegiance every day to the American flag and the Christian flag. How does that work? I don't know. Is Jesus enough? Is it just about making America a Christian nation again? Jesus is not about nationalities. <laughs> the bride of Christ is all people who put their faith in him. We we talk politics, we can talk politics. Not from here, though. Kingdom of God. Are you part of the true church? First and foremost. If you have a theology that says you won't suffer, and finally is Jesus enough. Let me... Let me pray before we do that, before we close. We're going to have communion. We get to talk about this new covenant that is the blood of Christ, that he institutes, that is about his kingdom come. His will be done on this earth just as it is in heaven. That is, Paul preached last week in Acts chapter two. Jesus, are you, Jesus, at this time going to restore Israel? And Jesus says, no, you are gonna preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's a shift. Is Jesus enough? We're gonna have communion, we're gonna talk, we're we're gonna remember what Jesus did. We're gonna break that wafer that represents his body that was broken for us, we're gonna drink the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us to pay for my sins, that makes me kingdom-minded, Jesus-minded. First and foremost, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would love for you to partake of these elements with us. If you're not, today can be the day. Today can be the day that you become part of the true church. Are you a pew sitter? I don't mean that of, of just, I'm just sitting here, I'm going to church, but are you a follower of Jesus? Listen, I was a pew sitter for the majority of my, my Christian life. Until I realized Jesus is enough, I need the gospel. Let me pray. And the team, worship team, will come back up, sing a couple songs, and we'll partake of these elements together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, your word. I thank you that as we read it, we can look at this major narrative, starting with, as Jesus said, starting with Moses and the prophets, that everything that was said was about me, was about your son, Jesus. That's not about one particular ethnic group. It's not about one particular nation. It is about the kingdom of God that takes place in my soul. So God, would you help us to be your church, your bride, your body, your family, to be witnesses in this world, to proclaim you who has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. God, would you help us do that? in our own lives, in our own minds, in our own families, and then moving forward to put you first, put you back on the throne in our hearts. You're always on the throne, but not always in my heart. So God, would you help me keep you on the throne in my mind, in my heart? God, we love you. Pray that you just be honored now as we proclaim truths about who you are, as we worship through song, and as we partake of these elements together. We love you, and it's in your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.